Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Google's data center secrets are finally being revealed, and we'll share the best bits, why the U.S. government is in no position to lecture us about cybersecurity, and how you can still get hacked offline. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 220 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 25th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. You should go check that out. It's how we do our live streams. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. I am looking forward to our first story today. You and I have speculated a lot on the show. I've read some books about Google on how they've built out their data centers. And since this show started, we've seen an interesting trend like from Facebook where they've come out and they've talked a lot about their data center mm-hmm. designs. Uh, we've actually seen some of the hosting providers that we've talked about kind of share their data center setups. Google's always been a big secret, though, huh? And they have, a, they have an yeah. impressive setup. And uh, they've started to kind of tell us a little bit about it. They just did a talk at the Open Network Summit, uh, and they kind of started to share a little bit of the secret. Uh, you know, they said that Google has, you know, for a long time been really into uh, distributed computing and data processing, right? Like the Google file system, MapReduce, Bigtable, uh, the Borg system they have and all that. Uh, and, you know, from the beginning, uh, they've been known for having great uh, computing infrastructure that was actually built on commodity hardware. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, they've required intense uh, data center networking technologies. Right? So they say, uh, for the past decade, we've been building our own network hardware uh, and software to connect all of our servers and our data centers together, power their distributed computing and storage platforms. Uh, now they're opening up uh, this powerful and transformative infrastructure uh, for use by external developers with the Google Cloud platform. Hmm. Uh, but they're also opening it up so they can tell us a little bit about it. That's so kind of what maybe the motive here, though, is for people that are curious about maybe hosting their stuff up on Google's platform, if they maybe share a little bit of the details, people are more comfortable with it, maybe? I think that's where they're going oh, for Possibly, it. although some of it, you know, if it's not a Google secret, then why not share it for everybody? I guess so, huh? Yeah. Uh, so, they, you know, they say, going back even just 10 years when they were starting to build this, uh, we could... They couldn't buy for any price a data center network that could meet the requirements of their distributed system. Right? They had more servers than anybody had ever really imagined before. And they said, you know, managing 1,000 individual network boxes uh, made Google's operations more complex, and you know, replacing a whole data center's network was too disruptive. Right? So every time, so, you know, they bought the biggest router they could buy, and then, you know, connect everything, and then. Be like, oh, well, finally the vendors come up with an even bigger router so that we can, now we have to go and replace that <laughs> big router with an even bigger router and mm-hmm. it caused them all kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the company started uh, building its own network using generic hardware controlled by software, kind of what eventually became known as software-defined networking. Uh, it also used the so-called CLOS topology, which is a mesh architecture with multiple paths between devices. Okay. And equipment built with uh, merchant silicon uh, and different kinds of chips that you know generic white, bo- uh, white box vendors use, and then the software stack is controlled uh, completely by Google with their own work uh, with the OpenFlow protocol. But basically, they've taken 
regular switches and connect to them together uh, instead of using their own protocol so they can actually uh, make a whole bunch of separate switches act as if they were actually one really big switch. Hmm. Uh, and so at the uh, 2015 Open Networking Summit, they started to reveal the f- uh, for the first time some of the details of the five generations of their in-house networking topology and how they've changed over time. So some of this is actually just Google giving away the secret sauce of stuff they used to do, which they've since replaced. But they say that their current uh, generation, which they call Jupiter Fabric, <laughs> I like that man, uh, can deliver more than one petabit per second of total bisection bandwidth. Uh, to put that in perspective, that would allow each of a hundred thousand servers to be exchanging ten gigabits per second, uh, which is enough to read the entire scanned contents of the Library of Congress in less than one tenth of a second. Wow. So say uh, we use a centralized software uh, control stack to manage thousands of switches within the uh, data center, making them effectively act as one large fabric uh, by using that class topology. So, uh, we build our own software and hardware using silicon we get from vendors, relying less on standard internet protocols and more on custom protocols tailored to their data centers. So they started to invent new protocols for managing this stuff. Uh, it kind of reminds me of, I think it's what, uh, data center TCP that Facebook and others are pushing. Yeah. That would move the uh, congestion control from the individual boxes to kind of a, a centralized monitor or um, mediator. Uh, so what Google's doing isn't data center TCP, but that's what uh, Facebook and others are pushing. Uh, but they say putting all of this together, their data center network deliver unprecedented speeds at the scale of entire buildings. Hmm. Uh, they're built for modularity uh, to be constantly upgraded to meet the insatiable bandwidth demands of the latest generation of their servers. Uh, they're managed uh, for availability so that, you know, if any one pod goes down, things don't break uh, to meet the uptime requirements of some of the most demanding Internet services and customers. Right? Everybody flips out if Gmail goes down or you, if, if YouTube doesn't work, the Internet is over. <laughs> It's a big deal, yeah. Yeah. Uh, most importantly, our data center networks are shared infrastructure. That means that the same network that power all of Google's internal infrastructure and services also power Google's cloud platform, right? This is the same idea as Amazon with EC2. They built uh, the Amazon Web Services thing to power their infrastructure, and then we're like, oh, well, now we have all this leftover infrastructure that we're not using right now. Uh, we could rent it out and make money. Uh, most importantly, our data center networks. Uh, sorry, I just read that. <laughs> uh, they're also excited about opening this capability up to developers across the world with the next generation internet service or platform can leverage word class uh, network infrastructure without having to invent it first. Hmm. Uh, they also say the amount of bandwidth that they have uh, to deliver to our servers is outpaced even Moore's law over the past six years, has grown by a factor of 50. Uh, in addition to keeping up uh, with computing power, the network will also need higher performance to take advantage of the fast storage technologies they're using now, really? like flash and non-volatile memory. Hmm. You know, uh, if, if you're accessing your storage over the network or just moving stuff to storage, uh, it, as the storage gets faster, all of a sudden your network demands go faster, right? If you can read off the disk faster, you need to be able to ship it to the other server faster. Right. Otherwise, your flash disks aren't doing you any good. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's hmm. kind of like, uh, you know, if you build a, a NAS or a SAN out of all SSDs, it's like, sure, it's going to be fast, but if it's only got one gigabit link to the network, yeah. you can saturate that with a couple of spinning hard drives. You, the SSDs maybe aren't going to make as big a difference there. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, but they say, sadly, uh, the full details will have to wait until their paper is published at uh, SIGCOM oh, in August. Oh, yeah, okay. So this is a little bit of a tease, isn't it? A little bit of a yeah, tease. Yeah, well, when I started writing it, I was hoping, <laughs> I was like, 
the detail's got to be in here somewhere. And it's like, I, I just want to see what the hardware looks like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the, the, you got, the you, switching you, stuff is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got a little you know, taste with that. You get a taste with the switches. Right. And, uh, you know, it was really interesting to see Intel offering a, a custom chassis that you could build your own switch with mm. that we talked about, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, six plus months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I've always been interested in, in Google's approach on the just the server hardware, you know, back when we used to hear about things like embedding a UPS battery directly in each 2U chassis. Yeah. So that, uh, Motherboard's you know, on a would, shelf kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, motherboard's on a shelf, each one with his own battery. Yep. So that uh, you would save the whole ACDC cycle of, right. of going from a UPS back to the computer and so yeah. on. Yeah, And they would and have people, I've, heard, like I've heard they've had people walk around with, I think I read this in, into the Plex, people walk around with like uh, almost like shopping carts and there's just, you know, Maybe a hundred that fail a day or something like that. And it's just expected, mm-hmm. and they just swap them out and put them, put the new one down, and then all of the firmware and all of the software and everything is pushed down over the network to them. So, yep. all right, Mister Judah, any other thoughts on that particular story? No, I just uh, I have a link to the blog post we started here and so on. And there's some interesting stuff in the comments, but mm, uh, maybe we'll keep our eyes. Looking forward to that paper when yeah. it comes out. We'll watch for that, and if, if you see it too, maybe submit it to our subreddit techsnap.reddit.com that way we don't miss it alright well I want to tell you about something I don't want you to miss it's a special special offer from our friends at Ting that wraps up at uh, about middle of next week if you go to techsnap.ting.com before June 30th you can get $50 off your first Ting device or if you have a Ting compatible device which is like going to be a lot of them because Ting has a big GSM and CDMA network. If you have a T- if you have a compatible device, then you're going to give you fifty dollars of service credits. Now, here's what's amazing about that: Ting is only pay for what you use mobile. You just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, whatever you use in those categories. That's what you pay for. It's a flat six dollars for that line, and then any applicable taxes. So imagine what fifty dollars could get you. Now, I have three phones. Now, I don't use three phones all the time. We have an HTC One, an iPhone Five, and we. I, oh, actually, I have a fourth phone. Uh, we have an, we have a, we have the uh, Nexus Five, which is currently running. Uh, I believe it's currently running uh, Firefox OS or Selfish OS. Uh, and then we have the S6. All of these are on the Ting line, and our bill is around thirty-seven, forty-two dollars, somewhere in that ballpark, every single month. Isn't that amazing? That's with all the yeah. features you'd expect. You know, uh, also hotspot tethering, all that stuff. You just turn it on. It's right there. And you also can turn off a device if you don't need to use it for a little while because you're only paying for your usage. And if like, so you, so you throw on a MiFi device on there, you know, again, it's just $6 for that line. And then when you use the MiFi device. And one of the best parts is if you ever get stuck, Ting has no hold customer service. You call 1-855-TING-FTW and a real human being answers the phone. That's a really nice service. And you know what? Even though I've been using Ting for over two years, I've never needed to actually call their customer service because their dashboard freaking rocks. It freaking rocks. You can do all kinds of things with their dashboard because they treat that as sort of like a software platform for the Ting customer. And they rev out updates. They internally develop and iterate on that and then push out new versions. It's a really cool system. Nobody else does management for your mobile like Ting. Also, when you're over at techsnap.ting.com, check out their blog. Yeah, uh, this is really neat. Ting is occasionally updating folks on their fiber internet rollout. Ooh. Ting's getting into fiber internet, too. Like They're like, well, let's take all our philosophies about mobile and apply it to fiber internet. And this is a really cool one. They're in Westminster. And uh, in the city of Westminster, they had it's dark... Westminster. Westminster, right. Westmore, yeah. Uh, they had dark fiber network here. And now check this out. This is, this is brilliant. So Ting comes in and lights up the dark fiber network there. And now Ting's going to manage Ting internet service on there. What a great idea. Yep. So uh, there's a lot. If there was one company I could pick to... to- be an ISP, it would definitely be Ting. No kidding, right? 
how easy they make everything. Yeah, yeah, they really do. And uh, you can get you can just get a taste of that by going to techsnap.ting.com. And then on that landing page there, try out that savings calculator. See how much you would save. I've saved over $2,000 in the last two years. And if you're a small business, this is an incredible way to get connectivity and mobility out to all of your team for a very, very, very low cost. So mm-hmm. great. Check out the four business section all about that. Techsnap.ting.com. And thanks to all of you guys out there for supporting the show by visiting techsnap.ting.com. Now, I love the headline, Alan, of the next story. It's like something to the effect of why the United States government should not be giving us lessons on cybersecurity or something like (laughs) that. All right, what's our next story about? Yeah, so so why should anyone trust the U.S. government, uh, what the U.S. government says about cybersecurity uh, when they can't secure the systems that they have full control over? Okay. You yeah. know, they're out there trying to tell us, oh, the internet's full of bad guys and we got to do stuff about it. And it's like, well, how about starting with your own stuff? Yeah, clean up your own house first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is uh, no doubt. And, and, and the big headline there was when IRS employees can still use the word password <laughs> as their password, uh, no wonder they got hacked. Uh, they say, <laughs> as, as I've personally been telling people for a long time, you have to assume the worst until you can prove otherwise. Right? Mm. Every time there's a breach, you assume they got everything yeah. until you can prove that they didn't. Yeah. None of this, oh, we don't think they got anything. Crap. Because then you have this here. <laughs> the effect of the massive hack of the uh, uh, Office of Personnel Management continues to ripple through Washington, D.C. Mm. As it seems every day we get more information about how the theft of millions of government workers' most private information is somehow worse than it seemed the day before. Yeah, yeah. It has just been growing, hasn't it? New rule. If you read about a hack of a government or corporate database that sounds pretty bad, you can guarantee it will be followed shortly thereafter by another story detailing how the same hack was actually much worse. Or much worse than previously admitted, mm-hmm. is the uh, phrase they use there. Yeah, it does seem to be yeah. the case, huh? It'd be one thing if this uh, incomplete or if this incompetence was exclusive to the OPM, if it's oh, just the one department wasn't doing things properly. But despite the government trying to scare private citizens with warnings of, you know, a cyber Armageddon or the cyber Pearl Harbor for years, they failed to take even the most basic steps to prevent massive data loss from their own systems, right? 80 to 9% of cyber attacks can be prevented or mitigated with basic steps like encrypting the data, patching your software, and using strong passwords. But it's obvious that the government isn't doing any of those three things. It's so basic. It really is as basic as that. Yes, or, you know, multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, everybody with a cell phone can do that now. Yeah. It's not that hard. There are services out there, too, to make it pretty straightforward to tie it into your existing system. I mean, it yep. It adds such such a layer of security. We just did a, a, highlighted a story on BSD Now this week. Episode just got released like a second ago. I saw Rikai in the chat room. Um, talking about how you can set up two-factor authentication for your SSH. Or how you can set it up for multi-factor so that you have to use, if, you know, most people log in with SSH with a key now, right? But you can actually, in your SSH config, force it to allow you to use a key and a password. Because while the, the pass, you can put a password on the key, that's checked locally on your machine, not the server you're logging into. So the server you're logging into doesn't know whether you have, if you've encrypted your key or not or how secure your key is. So on the server, you can say, hey, on top of the key, you also need a password, right? Provide me two things or you can't come on. Yeah. Uh, and then it talks about do, mixing that also maybe any two of three. You know, I need the password, a SSH key, and a Google Authenticator. Yeah. And things like that. Yeah, yeah, interesting. 
It's it's like two lines of config file. <laughs> Come on, people. <laughs> exactly. Um, but to say, uh, the agency that's been singled out for the most criticism, obviously, is the Department of Homeland Security. They're supposed to be setting the, the example for everybody, and instead they're the worst. Uh, the agency that is supposed to be in charge of securing all other government systems, uh, whereas a New York Times report uh, showed that you know they're not applying base wor- basic password complexity rules. So people have passwords like password or other, you know, hilariously terrible mistakes that they make in their IT infrastructure. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in modern versions of Windows with Active Directory, you have to specifically turn off password complexity requirements. They're <laughs> on by default. Uh, you know, but instead of addressing its own problems and writing a bill that would force the government to upgrade all of its legacy systems, uh, instead they've implemented stronger encryption across or, in, or implementing stronger encryption across federal agencies and implement you know basic cybersecurity best practices. Instead, they're pushing for dangerous information sharing legislation. Yes, thank you. That will you. just end up with more of citizens' private data being in the hands of the government. And then when they get breached, it gets leaked, and none of the companies that shared it are liable because the cyber sharing exactly. information provides indemnification for the companies that provide information. So there's no recourse yep. for, the, for the user, the consumer, etc. And then to make it worse, the FBI wants tech companies to install backdoors that would give the government access to all encrypted communications, thereby leaving everyone more vulnerable to hackers, not less. He's like, I don't understand how people can believe that there's such thing as a backdoor that only one person would have access to. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a backdoor that the FBI can use, it also means anybody else can use it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are two solutions that won't fix any of these glaring problems that are staring the, us in the face. Yeah. And... You know, so why are they all, pushing all, them all so this hard. happening is making this worse. They just, but they still push them pretty hard. I, yep. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just making things worse. Mm. 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 Yes, and we have a story in the roundup that uh, is sort of related to this as far as updates go and patching and security yes. and, and a popular vendor. I guess we might as well throw that out now. Uh, the U.S. Navy just spent $9.1 million uh, on a contract that could end up being for $30 million to get uh, security updates for Windows XP and Server 2003 because mm-hmm. apparently they still have as many as 100,000 computers that are still running Windows XP and Server 2003. Yeah. So a and couple of things. To, well, at least they're paying to still get the security updates, I suppose. Now, it's better than just not paying to get the security updates. Perhaps it, is all, uh, perhaps it is more economical to invest in the XP system than it is to replace it. It could be. Uh, and at the same time, the bigger question is, XP has been end of life for over a year. What have they been doing before now for security updates? <laughs> and, you know, like I've said before, and I know they could be writing specific patches, but you got to wonder, like, sometimes Microsoft is writing patches that could probably apply to other people that have XP, but they're not giving them to anybody. So Microsoft is sitting on fixes for a critical operating system in critical positions, ones that have consumer information, like point-of-sales machines, and they're just not releasing them because you're not paying up, even though they've written the code. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, they they announce they give people what five years of warning that XP was going away. I know it's not like they just decided that oh XP is not supported anymore if you don't pay us. It was like you know we've offered you this upgrade path for the last five years or more even. It's been a lot longer than that now. Mm-hmm. That is very true. All right, Mr. Junior, I don't know why we have this this culture of of not updating. Because uh, it's scary. Thing. It's scary, and businesses resist change and and want to mitigate yeah. risk as much as possible. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but the best way to mitigate risk is to do your development on the latest version, so that it's not a surprise when stuff changes. 
Well, there's you know, you got to be ahead of this curve. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, my big point here was that the solution to cybersecurity is not something you buy from a vendor, right? There are plenty of examples of large networks out there that are actually fairly well secured. Uh, but, you know, there's even more uh, examples of government and corporate networks that are horribly insecure, right? Uh, but again, it's, it's not that security is something you can go buy from a vendor. It's not really a question of money that's being not being spent on it. It's really just applying the same stuff security experts have been telling us for decades, right? Things like need to know. Only, A, you have some sensitive data like customer credit card information or, you know, uh, background checks on people with their medical records attached and so on. How about making it so only people that actually need that data today have access to it? Right, rather than just throwing it on a file share somewhere that everybody has access to, <laughs> or SharePoint. Yeah, you know, locking it down so only people that actually need it right now have access to it. Mm. Or patching. Right, software has flaws. These flaws get fixed and then they become public. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes the other way around, and that's when we have a zero day. Right, the, there's a flaw and everybody finds out about it, and then we get it fixed a couple days later. Ah, <laughs> uh, but. You know, if you don't patch your software quickly, you increase the chance that the flaw will be used against you. It's not that complicated. Install the patch. It's why they make them. <laughs> I know, Alan. You know this has been your whipping boy the whole show, and it still doesn't sink yeah. in. Uh, strong authentication, right? Password complexity requirements can be annoying, especially when they're too vague, right? Like, you know, often you go to a website to put in a password, and it's like, oh, you need a number, a lowercase letter, an uppercase letter, and a symbol. It's like, I just generated a password this long with LastPass, and it's not accepting it because it doesn't have a dollar sign in it somewhere. It's like, really, we, we really need better ways of detecting password complexity and, you know, being less annoying. But when you use a password manager, it's not that hard to have all the requirements. But anyway, uh, the bigger problem there is when systems don't securely store the password. Right? If they're not doing a proper cryptographic hash on it, then you know you get the stupid things like, sorry, your password can't be more than 14 characters long. It's like, why the hell not? Yeah. It's a hash. Yeah. If you store it as a hash, it's always going to be this long, no matter what. It'll be a fixed size in your database, and people won't be able to tell how long my password is. It's kind of a giveaway, and too, so- when I see those kind of things. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. crap. So they're obviously storing my password in plain text. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we just talked about multi-factor authentication. By requiring more than one factor to authenticate someone, you ensure that the attacker couldn't just shoulder surf, key log, fish, or otherwise get someone's password because when they go to use it, they'll only have the password, not the other part. Right? The Google Authenticator or the whatever other factors you end up using. Or encryption. Uh, this one can be hard as many of the solutions turn out to be not good enough. Right? It's like... Lots of people nowadays are like, oh, the hard drive on my laptop's encrypted. It's like, that's fine if, if someone steals your laptop or whatever. But what if someone gains access to your laptop while it's powered on and you're logged in, right? If you leave it and, and go to the bathroom and forgot to lock it or, you know, there's lots of ways that, you know, someone can get access to your computer, right? If they do an exploit against your computer and are running a program on your computer while you're logged in, they can access all your data as if it wasn't encrypted. And so what value is the encryption giving you in that case? Mm-hmm. So sensitive data should be offline when it's not in use, right? I understand like your whole operating system, that doesn't make sense. You're going to have that encrypted and when you're logged in, it's accessible, whatever. 
But if you have a giant database of credit cards and you're not using it right now, how about unmounting that so that you'd have to re-enter the password to get access to it? Now, if somebody compromises the machine, the data is not available to them at that time. Stuff like that. Or logging, right? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, lots of logging. It's like, well, if your logs don't actually have the information you need in them, they're not very much use. (laughs) But knowing who accessed what and when is very useful, even just after the fact. You know, the NSA's biggest problem with the Snowden leak is they weren't sure which files he actually stole. Mm. It's like, well, if you knew every time everyone accessed a file, A, you probably could have detected it sooner because, hey, why is someone guy accessing more files than in one day than is normal? But also, you know, you would know which files he touched and which ones he didn't. Uh, and maybe it'll help you stop the baddies from making off with your data. You can spot them while they're still trying to read the stuff before they even know which ones they want to steal. And then also auditing, right? If you have a security appliance like the Fudu that we've talked about a number of times, <clears throat> you only allow access to your secure system or servers through that Fudu. And that means every access to everything is recorded on video. Right, And that way, there's no other way to access those files. And then every contractor or administrator or whatever that goes to touch anything on any of those servers is recorded. Right, And you have separate logins for every person, so you know exactly who did what when, and you have it on video. It seems like a pretty good system to me. Or, you know, as we've discussed in TechSnap uh, episode 214 a couple of uh, weeks ago, I guess six weeks ago, uh, there are other techniques you can use, right? Uh, we went through that whole report from the Australian version of the NSA where they're like, if you just did the top five things off this list of 30 things you can do to secure your network, 90% of all exploits wouldn't happen. And, you know, the big one there was the whitelisting software. Maybe it doesn't make sense to whitelist software on every machine, but, you know, if you're going to have a machine that has sensitive stuff on it, how about making it so that malware won't be able to run because only the approved applications with the approved signatures would be able to run. Right. You know, but the key there is deciding what protections to use and where and how to do it while generating the least amount of user resistance, hmm. which was, I think, one of the most important parts of that report to me was the fact that they actually considered that and had it as one of the metrics on the table. Right, in that big table of all the different uh, things, it was like, how hard it would be to do, how much it would cost to keep it up, but also how much your users are going to hate you for doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, user acceptance factor. How low is that? How high is it? Yeah, because the higher and lower depends on how much they actually use that. And that's like one of the biggest problems. We, like, we ran into even with problems like with TrueCrypt. We'd have users try to use TrueCrypt on their laptops, and if they'd have to enter another password after they logged into their desktop, that'd be too inconvenient for them. And, you know, they kind of have to tell them tough luck. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, yeah. some things you just have to force the users to live with it. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, we'd be like, okay, then don't access the encrypted data, right? You don't, mm-hmm. you don't want them to enter that password every time. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you own, this, this is a good way for them to be like, I'm doing this because I'm about to access the encrypted data. And as soon as I'm done, I'm going to unmount it. And then it's, it's going to be unavailable again. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of stuff we were just talking about. Yep, Exactly. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Jude, coming up in just a little bit, uh, Google's Project Zero actually nets another 15 zero-day vulnerabilities, at least vulnerabilities. I don't know if they're zero days. We're going to talk about it. We'll find out the details on that first. 
I want to talk about DigitalOcean, the next sponsor for the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean is a great solution if you need some infrastructure on demand. You need something permanent, something short-term, something just to learn on. DigitalOcean checks all of those boxes. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. I want you to grab our promo code. It's SNAPOcean. Snap Ocean, grab that. It'll give you a $10 credit. And I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go here. And it's great, too, because you can try out DigitalOcean, no credit card. You just use Snap Ocean to get that $10 credit. And here's why it's perfect. Because in, lift, in less than 55 seconds, you can get started with a $5 a month droplet. That'll give you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. I love how straightforward DigitalOcean's pricing is, too. So for $5 a month, you get all that. Then you step up to the next, next dollar point, $10. And then you get a next, everything bumps up. You know, one gigabyte, 30 gigabyte of SSD, one, two terabytes of transfer. Uh, and did you notice That's something? That's a lot there? of transfer. I know. And all SSD backed, too, which is really great. Mm-hmm. And they have data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and Germany. Like that one in Germany has 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor. They're fastest mm-hmm. SSDs yet. That's really slick. And what I love is not just how fast you can get going, but how awesome their control panel is. They have a super simple intuitive control panel that lets you get everything done you need to manage your droplets, take snapshots, set up templates, one-click application deployments, destroy the machine, transfer it to another account, which is really cool if you're setting like up a WordPress blog for somebody and they want to ship it off to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all great. You can do all of those things through, the AI, uh, through their API as well. So the things you would use their website for, all of it's available through their straightforward API that they recently revved. And then, last but not least, they have great options to choose from from the operating systems, from some of the best Linux eyes out there, including the new Core OS and Fedora 22. They also have FreeBSD available. So there's a mm-hmm. bunch of great selections out there, all managed with their awesome dashboard, and they have incredible documentation to back it all up. Alan and I love the Bacula backup server, and they currently have a guide up at DigitalOcean on how to set up and install Bacula server on Ubuntu 14.04, and also one on PHP My Admin and how to actually secure here, PHP, my admin. Yes. DigitalOcean has great, great tutorials because they pay people and they have full-time content editors. In fact, they have open positions right now at DigitalOcean. Go there. Remember our promo code SNAPOcean. Try it, try it out. Get familiar with their interface. And why not submit for a job, too? Because they've got some open positions. Yeah. And they, Make sure you mention that on. you're a TechSnap viewer when mm-hmm. you apply for a job. Yeah. It'll help. It will. It'll give you a little bit of a heads up, I bet. Just a little bit of an edge. DigitalOcean.com. Use that promo code SNAPOcean and a huge... Hooch, thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnet program. We really appreciate it. And it's now my go-to Linux on-demand infrastructure. Like when we need to spin something mm-hmm. up, boom. Like we just needed a temporary FTP server for the weekend. It was great for that. And then we decided, you know what? It's so straightforward. It's so simple. It's so f- it's like almost – It's at $5, it almost feels free. It almost feels free at $5 for a server that powerful. So we left it up, and now we're using it for intermediate file transfers back and forth for quick things. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uses. I also have own cloud up there. I have a Minecraft server up there, BitTorrent, Sync up there. I mean, the, the Quasal Core server up there. There's a lot of things I'm using it for. DigitalOcean.com. SnapOcean gives you a $10 credit. Now, uh, I like this uh, story here. We're getting some serious results out of Google's uh, Project Zero, which not only sounds yes. cool, but is actually discovering some serious flaws. So what do we have this week, Alan? Yeah, uh, so this one is a researcher whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce because look at that. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Has discovered 50 new remote code execution vulnerabilities, uh, mostly having to do with the Adobe font driver. Uh, He says the most interesting of these flaws includes one that affects uh, Adobe Reader and the Windows kernel itself that appears to get past all known exploit defenses. 
the extremely powerful primitive provided by the vulnerability, together with the fact that it affects all supported versions of both Adobe Reader and Microsoft Windows, uh, this makes it possible to create an exploit chain leading to a full system compromise there you go. with just a simple bug or a single bug. Uh, makes it one of the most interesting security issues I've discovered so far. I also say that any of the 15 uh, vulnerabilities discovered by the researcher uh, uh, pulled from his old but seemingly unexplored area of um, exploits that uh, could trigger remote code execution or privilege escalation in Adobe Reader or the Windows kernel. And he's got a, a blog post that goes on about it, but uh, if you see the next link there, there's a video, uh, and this video just kind of underscores the point. Uh, so it starts with him just firing up a, a Windows VM or whatever and showing you this is Windows 8.1 and it's got all the latest patches installed. And then this is Adobe Reader uh, 11.0.10, which is all the latest patches. And then he just clicks open, opens the proof of concept PDF, and the front renderer pops up and then calculator pops up. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's unusual. Yeah. Well, then he runs Process Explorer and you can see that calculator uh, calc.exe was started by adobe reader <laughs> and if you go into the details you can see that calculator.exe is actually running as the system user which is even more powerful than administrator you have access to do things even the administrator is not allowed to do uh, so that simple basically wow. opening that pdf could allow someone to do anything they wanted to your computer why why how does a font get kernel level privileges how does that happen uh you, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, there's a couple, uh, but apparently it has to do with uh, PostScript um, char string security. And so basically, there's 15 vulnerabilities here, and you see that most of them affect uh, Windows and Adobe as well, but also some other uh, software as well. Uh, and it basically goes on to describe how you can just use this, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what it's called now, but basically, PostScript is basically a language that describes how to draw stuff for printing, mm-hmm. uh, and it has uh, a vulnerability in it. So, yeah, if you go down into the slides, okay, you can see it just puts this big long string of gibberish in there, and it allows you to do the blend operation. Uh, and with that, you can do a, a basically unbounded um, stack access, and basically just do whatever you want. And in their case, it was uh, be able to run, you know, the classic example for every exploit is is make it for calculator because that basically means you can run any code you want. Uh, so, yeah, it's <laughs> crazy stuff. Uh, and uh, we're yeah. starting to see patches for that stuff happening. Wow, I mean, this is a new, this is definitely a new angle for taking advantage of Adobe stuff. <laughs> like, yep. yikes. Uh, yeah, so, jeez, uh, Alan. So basically, you just have to have what to to be to be vulnerable to this. You need to be running Windows and have Adobe Reader and uh, have yep. to be thirty two bit. Uh, there's actually a version that seems to work on sixty four bit as well. Okay, all right, and there's fifteen different vulnerabilities that have been pulled from this. Yeah, and that was just the scariest of them. As a result uh, of Project also, Zero, huh? Cool. Yes, uh, and the, you know, on the Project Zero page for it, they have the timeline of you know when they found it and when they notified, and uh, you know, it's been the ninety days, so they're disclosing it and so on. Yeah. Uh, but Project Zero has also published a bunch of other interesting vulnerabilities recently. Mm, okay. Uh, the first one is Owning Internet Printing, a case study in modern software exploitation, which actually uh, found some flaws in CUPS, the uh, open source printing platform used on OS X, Linux, FreeBSD, and so on. Yeah. Uh, and 
uh, basically his internal string allocation could allow you to do stuff you shouldn't be able to do hmm. and basically exploit the internet printing functionality and do whatever you wanted. Uh, yeah, so in the background, it's uh, internet printing is really just HTTP modified yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they're able to do whatever they want. And a lot of people, uh, not a lot, but some people have uh, IPP open uh, over, over the firewalls, through the firewall, so that way some, a remote user can print or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's one of the things people sometimes let in. And because it's not super, super popular and common, I think some people think they get away with it. But they also say, uh, uh, this reflected cross-site scripting attack can be used to inject attacker-supplied JavaScript cross-origin bootstrapping exploitation strings uh, into the vulnerable CUPS scheduler interface, not directly reachable from the network. So, for example, if the CUPS instance is bound to localhost on a machine, uh, then you could trigger something in a user's web browser to exploit their CUPS, even though it's not exposed to the Internet. Basically, uh, load some JavaScript in their browser when they visit your website that would actually make their browser go to their the CUPS instance running on their local machine. Uh, so in their example, they're using a Ubuntu machine. And uh, by visiting a certain website, hmm. uh, it would exploit the Ubuntu machine's CUPS running on localhost not exposed to the Internet. <laughs> yep. Uh, and is it, uh, the string reference count bug was originally introduced in CUPS 1.2.0 sometime in 2006. All versions since then are affected. Given the large number of affected versions, the vast majority of basically every unpatched CUPS instance in the world probably has this vulnerability. Yeah. Because the chances of you running a version of CUPS from before 2006 is pretty unlikely. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty popular one. I mean, there's a lot of Macs out there now, and there's a lot of Linux rigs running CUPS. So that's a lot yep. of, I bet we're going to see a lot of patches roll there, out. The even worse one is there are a lot of routers that run CUPS now so they can do network printing, right? Those little routers with a mm-hmm. USB port and mm-hmm. you like plug a printer into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's all kinds of embedded devices running CUPS that you don't even know about. Yeah. And also uh, CUPS is used for some other stuff. So oftentimes if you have software that's able to generate PDFs or something, it might actually have most of CUPS bundled into it. Hmm. Didn't and all that. kinds of ridiculous stuff that. like that. Yeah, busy. I've seen software I was installing on my server pulling cups, and it's like I don't even have a printer. What's this? Hmm. Uh, but and they uh, they go into talk about you know disabling the web uh, interface to cups and some other stuff to try to reduce the problem. But Apple uh, did the fix in April. Oh, okay. Uh, and then, uh, but the open source cups didn't have a release until June eighth. <laughs> so uh, fairly so recently. Project Zero found and reported the bug to Apple in March, uh, on March 20th. Uh, on April 16th, Apple shipped the fix as part of OS 10, uh, 10.10.3. And then on June 8th, CUPS did its official release of 2.0.3. Mm. And then June 18th, uh, Google's uh, Disclosure Plus 90 Days time was up. And so the next day on June 19th, they published their Project Zero uh, blog post here. They also say that uh, as part of CUPS 203, uh, which is the one that fixed the problem, yeah. and the 2.1 beta, they all, those contain several prescient implement, uh, implementation changes that limit the risk of impact of similar bugs in the future. So the CUPS oh. people have actually gone about uh, making it, so not just fixing this vulnerability, but making sure similar ones are harder to do in the future. Oh, good. Yeah, they say uh, configuration value strings are now logically separated from the uh, string pool allocated using uh, Sturdoop instead of their... Uh, other interface that they were using before. And the uh, 
Dynamic loading uh, environment variables are blocked when Cups is running as root so that you can't inject mm. your own code into Cups. Good. Also, the localhost listener is removed uh, when web interface is disabled, uh, in starting in the 2.1 beta only, though. Okay. Uh, but that's that one. The other interesting one that I saw... Uh, From Project was, Zero? Yeah. Uh, was, dude, where's my heap? <laughs> of course. So... Um, in Windows, they've introduced in Windows 8, Microsoft introduced the new high entropy bottom-up randomization, which is an expansion on ASLR that basically introduces a one terabyte variance in the start address of the heap. Hmm. So they just, you know, a giant terabyte range and then just pick a random place in it. It's making it much harder to do uh, workarounds for ASLR. Sure. And stuff. And basically, you know, because the uh, stack could be anywhere in there, it made it a lot harder to find it than you know when it was the typical smaller address space. However, uh, but a technique that is commonly used uh, in uh, browser exploitation is mm-hmm. called heap spraying. Mm-hmm. And, and so where you just keep doing it until you can find the stuff you're spraying in the heap. But by having a one terabyte variance, it means it's very unlikely you'll be able to do it. Uh, the problem is Microsoft or Internet Explorer also introduced another mitigation called memory protector in order to prevent the exploitability of uh, use after free vulnerabilities. Uh, however, the mitigations are not meant to be related, but they actually have unexpected consequences when combined. Uh, so memory protector can be abused to actually bypass the high entropy bottom-up randomization. Uh, so it's, it's possible to use a timing attack on the memory protector to reveal the offset used by the high entropy bottom-up randomization, thus completely bypassing it and making it useless. Jeez, no way. Uh, so the second system Microsoft tried to add actually takes away all the usefulness of the first one. I love that. I love yeah. that from my from my deep evil place inside me. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it says a uh, memory protector, protector works by preventing uh, the object from being freed if its address can be found in the stack somewhere. Mm. Uh, if memory protector is enabled for certain classes, deleting won't free the memory right away. It will just uh, zero it out uh, once the size of these freed but not really uh, freed objects reach a certain threshold, the memory protector will scan the stack and clean up after. Hmm. But uh, apparently it gives away the offset of the one terabyte variance and therefore makes it useless. Well, that's a heck of an update. <laughs> uh, they also mentioned that uh, on February 5th, two weeks after uh, the researcher sent this report to Microsoft, uh, HP security researchers also announced that they had found a mitigation bypass uh, or they had received a mitigation bypass bounty from Microsoft, uh, in addition to other attacks that mentioned that the attacker can use memory protector as an oracle to completely bypass ASLR. Mm. And so it leads them to believe that somebody might have actually found something similar in their own research, separate mm. from his. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes people come to those same conclusions around the same time. Yeah. Uh, there's also uh, two other interesting ones. The one is analysis and exploitation of ESET. Uh, which is a anti of antivirus program, and the question there is: Do we really understand the risk versus benefit trade-offs of using security software? Because oftentimes they're doing yeah, systems yeah, yeah. Uh, to they're they, doing things to to kind of change. And how they your have such works. access too. They have they have deep access to your system. Mm-hmm. And uh, so sometimes they could actually be adding more vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. and they're they're protecting you from. In fact, uh, the last one there, oh, there was a story this week. I think it was this week, right? Maybe we put it in the roundup. I can't remember that um, 
uh, that the NSA and GCHQ, new documents came out from the Edward Snowden trove that uh, GCHQ and NSA were specifically going after Kaspersky Labs and DSET because they went after Kaspersky and DSET because they have uh, software that gets full privileges to these machines. And if you can compromise that software and ride that, and ride that privilege yep. bandwagon, you're in. Yeah, there is another story how um, the Israeli government had hacked one of the antivirus vendors, but I don't think it said which one. Hmm. Uh, and then the last one was inconsolable, or inconsolable, uh, which was developing a sandbox escape chain for Chrome uh, on Windows by getting out of certain job mm. control stuff. Mm. Uh, a leaky sandbox. All of those are fairly recent. Yeah. Uh, so f- using a, a flaw in Windows to be able to uh, break out of the Chrome sandbox. <laughs> Google's like, damn it, Microsoft, damn it. <laughs> Get your crap together. <laughs> wow, good ones. So look at Project Zero. They're really pulling in they're really pulling some weight, aren't they? Gotta yep. give it. They really seem to be producing. This is the second or third time we've done an update where they found some good stuff. Any other thoughts on that, Alan? Uh nope, that's about it for that one. Alright, well I'll give you something I have thoughts on. That's IX Systems. Go to IXSystems.com slash techsnap. IXSystems.com slash techsnap. They are huge advocates for open source, and that's why they're going to build the best servers in the industry for your open source solution. And they have great pre-purchase consultation that really works. It's not something you're going to want to avoid. It's something you're going to want to embrace. On-time delivery, servers built to meticulous quality, white glove support, and they run on those awesome Intel processors. And something else you might appreciate if you're shipping these out to a remote data center, they do burn-in testing before they ship them to you. I know that's something Alan likes, and see, sometimes you never even visit the data center he's sending servers to. Isn't that true? You never, like, really yep. have to go there. Yeah, I've, n- I've never been to the one in Portland where uh, the server that this live stream is going to is at. <laughs> so that's why it's nice that they do a little testing before they ship it out, right? <laughs> yep. Uh, well, also, you know, the way their warranty system worked, you know, when one of the hard drives in the RAID Z array died, it was like, okay, we'll ship you a new one, and, you know, we'll fill out all the extra paperwork so that it goes to the data center and gets installed in the right server uh, without you having to go be there to supervise it. Hmm. I like this blog post they just recently posted up too. They talk about EMC's uh, VIPR uh, system and ask if it's really open. They have a really good perspective on this because they've been dealing with open source storage solutions you know, since the beginning. Mm-hmm. This is in their DNA. So they got a great yeah. post up about that if you're curious. A lot of companies are now all trying to go, oh, yeah, we're all open, open source too. Open, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, they have this list of things. It's like, be serious about your commitment to open source. Actually open source stuff and, you know, actually become part of the community, right? And contribute. Just, yeah, oftentimes the other problem uh, companies that, that try to do open source do is that, you know, once a year they'll drop a new version of something and then they'll, you'll never hear from them again, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's not really open source. That's just dropping your code on everybody. They have amazing open source is about the community and, and everything r- around it, not just the code being available. Look at this thing. Look at this thing. Uh, this. Yes. Uh, oh, oh, I just slid by. I want to go back to that. What? I don't. I don't even know what this thing is. Co- uh, this. Oh, come on. Show it to me. Show it to me. This thing right there. The Intel. It's got Intel Xeon E5 260VE. Uh, four servers in this thing. Two redundant power supplies. So two servers there. Yep. Two servers there in one chassis. In Man, one. That's fr- the. Uh, Twin 2X or whatever it's called. And basically, yeah, in a 2U, you get four servers that are completely independent and they share two redundant power supplies. That's so awesome. And then they have things yeah. like that all the way down to the free NAS mini for your small business or home office. And they have these machines that are just packed full of disk. These are yep. really and cool. Yeah. Uh, those new, there's uh, the quad version. There's a four 
U tall system that has eight complete servers in it. Ooh, fancy, yeah. fancy, fancy. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go check them out, won't you? IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That lets them know we sent you. And also they have a white paper that you can grab if you need to grease the wheels up the chain to try to switch, a, mm-hmm. switch over to a much better hardware vendor. Hey, Alan, while we're talking about open source and BSD-like things, probably we should mm-hmm. mention, like you teased earlier, episode 95 of the BSD Now program is out. Bit rock. Group therapy. That's a good one, Alan. Yes, a uh, great interview with the Sysadmin, uh, uh, lead architect at uh, Groupon and how they manage their undisclosed but suggested to be more than 10,000 FreeBSD servers. Woo-wee. Check it out. Episode 95. This is the midway point of the TechSnap program. So if you want to get a little bit more Alan Jute's face after this show, just go download the HD version. That way it's in all of the definitions we have available. And by the time we're done with this show, that download, I'm sure, will be finished. You can find that over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. It's episode 95 of the BSD Now program. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, submitting something on our subreddit, which you might have done, might have, techsnap.reddit.com. And our first email comes in from Sam. Alan, buckle yourself mm-hmm. up. He says, hi, guys. I just listened to uh, TechSnap 219. That was last week's episode, where you mentioned the major data corruption bug that can happen in conjunction with certain Samsung SSDs with the newest firmware version running on Linux. Although, maybe it's not Linux's fault. I have one of the affected drives, the Samsung 840 Pro, but I think I'm safe because I've never updated the firmware, which is currently at a rather old revision. Uh, additionally, I'm running XFS with disk without, or I'm sorry, with the discard option, not extended for, like all of the reports I've read. Now, I'm not clear if the problem arises when using any kind of trim command on this device or just the queued trim command. Would I be safer in disabling altogether the discard option in SCFS tab uh, and the uh, weekly uh, FS trim job on cron? And if I do that, should I also add the no CQ option at my, to my grub boot where you uh, force the libata to use no CQ, which I think is no queuing? Uh, to the boot options. Is there any other hidden process in Ubuntu that will run trim that I don't expect it? Thanks for all the additional insight. I don't entirely understand this issue and possibly the risk of my situation, but he sounds like he's pretty afraid of trim with that Samsung uh, 840 Pro. Um, yeah. If you're that concerned, turning trim off will uh, do something for you. Um, I know that the Linux kernel got a patch in May to blacklist uh, those drives as far as the feature that causes the problem, uh, which I think is... The trim command going in the NCQ or native command queue, uh, completely disabling NCQ will probably hurt performance uh, on uh, all your other operations. So no, like is, normally the I see. the general so, idea is so NCQ on a regular SATA drive is basically a queue of up to thirty two commands. So you tell the drive a bunch of things you want it to do, and it can reorder them and do them in whatever it wants. And and basically asynchronously you say, "Hey drive, I need you this, 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 and this," and then it tells you when each one of those is done. So and, in other words, then if on. he if he sets that in his grub boot that uh, uh, libata force no uh, NCQ, NCQ, then he's, he's uh, good. It could hurt performance. But but he's but he's he's avoiding this firmware I'm problem. Not, I'm not sure. I, I ah. don't completely understand the firmware bug or the problem. So with it the might Samsung not be worth problem. it then if it's going to hurt performance and he's got an old yep. version of the firmware. I would say, if it, the problem is definitely with trim, so disabling trim will probably uh, be less likely to cause problems than disabling NCQ. Mm, okay. Uh, so you want a new enough Linux kernel that it actually has the drive on the blacklist, so that the uh, driver knows not to try to do trim that way. Yeah. And uh, either way, possibly disabling trim will help, although that will eventually degrade the performance of the drive. 
although that maybe you know every so often you take a backup and then you could run that weekly fs trim where it would trim all the stuff just at once instead of you know during normal use so one of the things that he mentioned that we we, we pointed out in the reports is it also doesn't seem to be affecting anything but extended four right so he's also well no if it depends which you there were many reports remember there was one that was about uh you know raid on ext4 right, right. Uh, the one about trim, trim doesn't oh, care about what file of. system right. it is. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Trim doesn't care which file system it is. It will, you know, the, the bug is that it was uh, trimming the wrong block or something. <laughs> right. And I don't know that I've read enough that actually explains exactly what the problem was uh, that would causing it to delete the wrong section of files, but that will have nothing to do with what file system you're using. Uh, so, yeah, you might be best off disabling trim until somebody figures out what the hell's going on. Uh, yeah. Or just use ZFS re- with redundancy and uh, recover if the drive accidentally deletes something it's not supposed to. I like that option too. All right, Eric writes in with our next question: to sync or delta to delta sync or not to delta sync. Hello, Chris and Alan. I find uh, he said I really like to find an open source private sync solution for my personal use to lessen my reliance on the cloud. I'm really liking own cloud, but it doesn't do delta file sync. I understand there may be many efficiencies gained by using a solution that only syncs the changes. You know, like like with bitmaps and JPEGs. Um, <clears throat> I really like your value and understand your understanding of technology. So, uh, however you explain it, I would love for you to talk about how file deltas work on large files, encrypted files, compressed zip files, and other file formats. How does a binary make up these different file types actually change when the file is modified? Could you also talk about the pros and cons of the different delta algorithms that exist, like rsync or sync thing or others? Even compare these solutions with maybe say ZFS. What do you think, Alan? Want to take a shot at any of that? Uh, so the biggest one, rsync's delta algorithm is very good, but some of the the biggest question is like obviously he said one of the examples of a where delta compression doesn't make sense is a JPEG because when you change something it kind of cascades and affects the whole file. Yeah, uh, and that's very true. The other thing is how often does a JPEG actually change? If you take a picture, other than maybe editing it in in Photoshop or GIMP or something, why else would a JPEG ever change? And so if your files are all JPEGs that are never going to change, then a delta algorithm is not going to do you any good. You know, Delta algorithm works really good if you're updating, say, source code, which is text files where you might add and remove chunks of text, but where most of the file stays the same. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, rsync and similar algorithms are actually slower because what you end up doing is reading the entire contents <laughs> yeah. of every file yeah. on both sides <laughs> and comparing them and then deciding what to ship. Yeah, uh, that whereas, can be a bit of a, of a CPU hog, too. Right, whereas you can end up being a lot faster to just say, give me every file that's been modified in the last two days and ship it over. Uh, so it really depends on your types of files and how often they're changing and mm-hmm. how much they're changing. Right, if, if, a, if a file's being mostly changed, then shipping the whole thing will make a difference. Uh, yeah, a Delta algorithm is not going to help you if almost the entire content of the file has changed. If you're just adding a little bit to the end of a file and the file's in plain text or something, then yes, uh, a Delta algorithm makes sense there. Uh, but the, yeah, like you said, the problem is you know when you have a zip file, because of the way the compression works, if you change any of the files in the zip file, it ends up completely changing the whole file, basically. And so, for example, Word docs are actually now a zip file containing a bunch of XML and other stuff. Uh, so they're not like before where you would actually maybe get a good Delta on them. Now, most likely, if you change uh, very much <laughs> mm-hmm. the content of a, a, a Word, a Microsoft Word doc, it actually just becomes a completely different uh, compressed 
archive. Mm-hmm. And your delta algorithm is not going to basically gain anything from trying to do a delta on it. It's going to end up reshipping the entire file anyway. So, so now you just did reading the file on both sides to compare them first for no reason. He asked for our final word on whether uh, deltas are really add much value to a sync solution. and uh, or That if- really comes down to how much are your files changing and what kind of files are they. Yep. Yeah. And if, you know, if most of your change is brand new files, then Delta is not helping you at all. You know, how often are you going back and changing the contents of an existing file? And when you do that, uh, depending on the file format, is that file substantially the same or is it mostly different now? Mm-hmm. And this is where ZFS comes in because uh, he mentioned that one in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with ZFS, basically, it doesn't have to do any of that, right? Normally, with an rsync, you end up, you have to crawl through every directory that, in the set that you want to ship over and look at each file and decide and all that. With ZFS, all it does is take the date of the last time it replicated and, the, and uh, find every block that's been modified since that date and ship it over. So it can do that like instantly and just saturate your gigabit network immediately to do that. And that's why ZFS uh, replication is so much faster than something like rsync. <clears throat> All right. I was trying to think if there's any other good uh, comparisons. Like, I like Dropbox's way of syncing, but uh, Onc- you know, I, I use Onclub quite a bit. What, like, I, I don't know what their Delta algorithm is. No, no, like, no, I don't no. think they publish that. No. Uh, Tarsnap has a cool one where Colin's uh, written a couple of papers on it. But hmm, Okay. That might be worth checking out, too. All right. Paper D from the IRC writes in about changing domain name registrars and maximizing email uptime. says, hey, guys, thanks for the great show. <clears throat> so I'm searching around for this, but I haven't come up with any really good solutions yet. I'm migrating my domain to a new registrar, but my domain has my email address, and uh, I'd like to lose as little email as possible during the transition. How can I maximize the uptime of my email while changing registrars? I realize that there will be uh, and have to be some downtime, but I'd like to make it as minimal as possible. Well... It depends. If your email is not hosted at your domain name registrar, there can be zero downtime. Uh, not only when you, mo- when you transfer a domain from one registrar to another, there's the option to just leave the name servers the way they were. Uh, and as long as your name servers weren't also hosted by your registrar, uh, the domain won't, you'll have zero downtime, right? Your, your mail server will still point to the same IP address as it always has, and uh, hmm. the domain will just switch. How much do you, you want know, to bet, I, though? I moved a bunch. But yes, a lot of people take advantage of the free name server hosting. Yeah, their, yeah. Uh, and it, some of them just yeah. set it up autom- Most of them just set that up automatically for you. Yeah, and uh, you know, if if you don't have a big reason to use your own name server or don't already have your own name server, you're, that's what you're going to be so doing. So, what would be his so, steps then? You think? Uh, then, um, if you get your own name server to prevent this issue in the future and so mm-hmm, on, mm-hmm. you can get it set up with all the records ahead of time, so that as soon as the name server switch happens. Uh, your email still works, and then you can do the domain transfer after that or whatever. Uh, although, yeah, because most of the... Um, the problem with letting your uh, domain registrar do it is that the place you're transferring to probably won't have the ability to let you set up the zone before the transfer so that when it transfers over, it already has the data. Could, is, there, is there a way he could, like... This is hard because the domain name itself is changing... So there's not even like a way to like have the mail go to like a mail route type storage place because there's just going to be a, beer, a period of time where that lookup doesn't work. Well, if yeah, if you have your own name servers, there won't be a period like that. Right. So could he do that first? Uh, it can, although sometimes it's hard to change a domain right before you're going to transfer it and so on. Uh, but yeah, something like that's an option to, or you know, at least have a backup MX. And if you mm-hmm. set the DNS TTL high enough. Then people that have already emailed you, maybe, but yeah, that's certainly not going to help. That might um, be something that helps, though. Not, not really. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you have your own domain DNS servers, then this is not a problem. Uh, and so you might look at doing something like that. Uh, you know, a service like DNS made easy or something to let you do it. Or even yeah. I think like Afraid.net offers free hosting. I think, yeah, there is some. Yep, there is some. Yep, there's free ones. And you can do something like that. Uh, and then that way those name servers will point somewhere that's not either of the registrars. And then during the transfer, you just say, keep my existing name servers and uh, no downtime. Boom. All right. Janitor1 writes in asking about a question regarding managing keys. I need to back up. Uh, and I'm looking at using Tarsnap. This got me mm-hmm. thinking about keys, though, since their security and whereabouts will be paramount. Otherwise, I lose access to my backup. So I figured I would turn to the experts. How do you store your keys safely? Storing them on a server would definitely maintain their integrity, that, and that would, by definition, also make them more accessible. So how many keys do you guys have? You know, he's got open VP, VPN, Mumble, VPSs, Tarsnap, and things like that, and he wants to know what it is that we do. He says he's fairly new to keys in general. I don't have expert knowledge on the topic, but I think you can see where I'm going here. Please enlighten me on the best practices and considerations for maintaining my keys. Uh, the Tarsnap key, I actually have mine printed out on paper and, and put away uh, off-site <laughs> mm. because uh, you can't get any of your backups back without that key. Right. Uh, so, in addition to you know, uh, I use a separate key for each uh, machine so that one machine doesn't do the other. Mm, good idea there. Yeah. Uh, and so on. And then yeah. So the the key for my main home server, uh, I have it has the keys to the other ones locked away, uh, but the key for it is on paper and uh, lives at my parents' house uh, in case something happens to my house, um, and that way I can always get back and get in my tar snap. And I back up all my other keys into my Tarsnap. Clever. So when all, when Although, you know, all, obviously, you know, maybe I should have a second backup too, yeah, because yeah. you know something could happen to Tarsnap. But I know I know Bitcoin people that uh, print out some of their Bitcoins addresses on paper too, and they put them like in a, a safety deposit box somewhere or something like that, yeah, or at least a fireproof yeah. box or something like that. Yeah. What about uh, like if it wasn't so critical, would uh, maybe just a couple of flash keys be okay? What do you think? Yep. Uh, the the keys to access our uh, encrypted credit card store for Scale Engine, right. two USB keys here on my desk. Yeah. So there's different. There's definitely different approaches you could take to it. I like that he's thinking about this. If you guys have any suggestions or any tricks, like uh, maybe this is a good use for LastPass or KeePass too. Maybe I don't know. Uh, yeah, stuff like that can help. Uh, you know, uh, LastPass is a great thing for storing random things, like mm-hmm. the serial number for my copy of Wirecast. Right. So that when I'm at a conference and I need this. For some reason, to type in the serial number for Wirecast yeah. on my laptop, yeah. I can have it yep. instead of trying to find it in my email somewhere where they mailed it to me and so on. I bet there's a lot of good ideas out there. TechSnap.reddit.com. There'll be a feedback mm-hmm. thread for two twenty. And but uh, yeah, uh, I know I definitely know what it means because I have um, VPN, uh, Mumble, Mumble uh, yeah. Teamspeak, Tarsnap, you know, all of them. Lot, uh, SSH keys for work, SSH keys for FreeBSD, SSH keys for GitHub. Uh, you know. All kinds of stuff. My GPG keys. I have a separate GPG key for, for FreeBSD now. <laughs> All that crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, GPG keys, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, if you have a question for the TechSnap program, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose TechSnap from the drop-down, or email strictly techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I also mentioned that subreddit. It's another great place, techsnap.reddit.com. Most people use the contact form, though, because then you know that the monkeys just automatically de- deliver it to us, and that's kind of nice. Uh, and the subreddit's good, too, because then if we don't get a chance to answer it, not only do you still have a good chance that there's going to be community input, but usually in the subreddit, it jumps out at us closer than the email does. So that's if you really got a question that needs to get answered, techsnap.reddit.com. All right, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. 
Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup has stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read up on your own after the show. And some of these links potentially could theoretically have come from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Alan, brace yourself. This first story makes me want to smack my head. So hard. Facepalm. Facepalm, like an aggressive facepalm, face like an aggressive <laughs> facepalm. Sam, Samsung. Double facepalm. Yeah. Is de- de- uh, deliberately disabling Windows updates. Uh, now, here's the great, here's a great thing, because you get, you get SW update, and it downloads a, an update literally called disable underscore Windows update.exe. How about that? Yeah. So uh, the story on that one is uh, a user on the forum where the author of this blog post uh, does his work. Uh, was having problems with Windows Update kept getting disabled. So eventually they used the uh, Windows auditing policy framework to log every time the registry got changed and on for the Windows Update key. And eventually yeah. trace it back to this window, uh, disable underscore Windows Update.exe, which apparently actually comes with the Samsung software updater. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess like the, 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 the basic uh, rumor on the street is that uh, Samsung was having some problems with Windows Update, updating drivers causing tax support issues. So Samsung thought, you know what we're going to do? Just turn off Windows Update, and we'll give them updates. We'll do the updates. Yeah, yeah and they got caught red-handed about it. I'm sure Microsoft made a phone call. You know what's amazing about this? What was it, two weeks ago? That we- it's, I, I thought like the whole uh, Windows uh, UAC was supposed to prevent things like an, a malicious application from being able to disable Windows Update. Oh, that's a good point. No, I was going to point out that Microsoft has a serious problem with their OEMs undermining the, the security of their operating system. There's nobody more yep. qualified to provide patches for the platform than the platform vendor. That's Microsoft. Okay, so what was it? What, two weeks ago we had, three weeks ago, we had the Lenovo Superfish or whatever the hell it was where they're intercepting SSL traffic? This mm-hmm. is, so now we have Samsung and we have Lenovo that are really damaging the security of Microsoft customers' computers. Now, really, Samsung yep. sees everybody as Samsung customers, and they don't, they don't see Microsoft as anything but other than the OE, uh, software provider, but... Microsoft has got to get the crap together with their hard, with their OEMs because Windows is still a crap show because of these guys. Well, it's the same thing with Android, right? It's mostly the handset vendors that are Crapping causing up. all the problems. I guess so. And the fragmentation and so on. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, guess what? Big news story about Adobe Flash and a uh, zero day. Yeah. Surprise. Yeah, uh, zero day being used. Uh, FireEye found it being used by one of the uh, big APT teams. And so uh, the details have been given to Adobe, and they've done a zero-day uh, patch. So you need to hurry up and install that patch because this zero-day exploit is being actively used in the wild by attackers. Good times. Good times. All right. Linked for the info on that in the show notes. Uh, now, this isn't a uh, – did I open this Adobe? There's not two Adobe ones in a row, right? Uh, no. Okay, good. Then we'll talk about uh, Google uh, and the fact that it was uh, forced to relo- uh, hand over information about Jacob Applebaum. This is kind of revealing, isn't it? Yes, during the WikiLeaks grand jury investigation. Yeah, and so Jacob Applebaum is uh, what he's been involved with the creation of Tor. Obviously, he's connected to WikiLeaks. Uh, he's been he's worked for the State Department, and uh, it looks like Google fought it for a little while too. And then, uh, but eventually, they had to give in, and they were also weren't allowed to notify Jacob about it either. Yep, exactly. They had to keep. And this is the problem with these privacy invasion gag order things that the government does. I love this next story. It comes from Computer World. One in three data center servers is a zombie. <laughs> See, they misused the term there because they don't actually mean zombie as in it's part of a botnet. Yeah, okay. They just mean that one in three servers in data centers are powered on but are not actually doing anything and haven't done anything for six months. I, I could believe that. Then part of it, I imagine, is capacity stuff. You never know, uh, right? You might need it. And, and redundancy. 
you know, uh, you got to have a second database server in case the first one goes down or whatever. But mm-hmm. even though most of the times those would be considered to be doing something if they're or maybe one stuff staging or development and one's production, and you know you don't do a lot of staging. But even then, I imagine they do something at least once every six months. Yes, you'd hope. <laughs> uh, but they say one of the other interesting things is that the number of about thirty percent idle servers uh, appears to be about the same as it was going back to two thousand and eight, even. Uh, so, as we've added more and more servers, we've kept the number of idle servers about the same. Hmm. Even though I don't think we've had an official announcement that it was China that was behind it, officials are saying to the Washington Post that Chinese had access to the U.S. security clearance data for a year. This is back to that Office of Personal Management breach. Right, and uh, going back to the first one where one of their subcontractors was breached. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was probably before OPM was actually hacked, mm. uh, but that the Chinese had access to this data for a long time. That makes sense, yeah. That, that, I got you there. But the next one also makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, so Bruce Schneier uh, wrote up over at Wired.com, uh, a response to a headline from another less responsible publication where they said, you know, China and Russia uh, have access to the Snowden docs and basically say that China and Russia somehow hacked the encrypted store of uh, the way that um, Snowden had encrypted the documents, which most likely isn't true. Uh, but it's, uh, Schneider says that China and Russia almost definitely do have the Snowden docs because they would either have managed to steal them from the reporters' computers because, you know, as we saw from these stocks, even in 2008, the NSA had ways of stealing stuff from your computer when it wasn't even hooked up to the Internet, let alone other stuff, right? All right. This is their job, too. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so they most likely will have stolen the documents from the reporters and other people that had them not from Snowden. Because as uh, Schneier explains in the article, Snowden doesn't have access to the documents and uh, had given up access to them before he even got to Russia, so he couldn't have given them to the Russians. So it was, uh, uh, it was still, they're still but, encrypted, though. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, no matter how much, you know, as Schneier's like, I have access to these documents, and I'm a paranoid cryptographer, and even I'm not sure that they haven't managed to steal them from me. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing he says, it's also probably likely that the Chinese have managed to steal them from the NSA before Snowden did. Yeah, yeah, very possible. Uh, so I think yeah. it was, what, the Sunday Times that, uh, yeah, the Sunday Times, Corky says, that wrote that. And uh, the yeah, guy that... This, their headline didn't make any sense, like, just from a technical standpoint. That guy was, uh, we, we rolled it in unfiltered two weeks ago. Uh, that guy was later interviewed by CNN. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you saw this. Oh, I don't, you probably didn't. <clears throat> yeah. So the, the guy that wrote that article literally said word for word that he has no proof of what he wrote and that he wrote what the government told him to write. He says that in the interview. <laughs> so, yeah, you can take it for whatever yeah. you want to take it for. Uh, all right, Mr. Jude, let's move on in the roundup because we've got a Cisco story to talk about, everybody. The default SSH yes. key found in many Cisco security appliances. What, just a default? They all share it? What? Yeah, so basically there's one SSH key that's okay. in the authorized keys file sure. of every one of these Cisco appliances. Why not? So somebody ever got this key that apparently Cisco has... Uh, they would have unlimited root access to every one of the security devices. Remember, folks, you're paying for that Cisco this, quality. This, this this is for the remote support thing. Yeah. So they can log into your box if you ask them to. That, that Cisco support quality. By default. Uh, all right. This next one comes from Brookings. Really? Brookings? The Brookings Institute. Now, this is really? Okay. Uh, if you can't keep yeah, hackers so, uh, out, find and remove them faster. Now, that's an interesting idea. Yes. So this is uh, Richard Belcherk, uh, who's a very well-respected security researcher. And, yeah, basically his point is it's not always possible to stop hackers from breaking into your system. So what you have to do is be able to find out when they have and get them out of there before it's been a year, like in the case of the OPM. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, move faster because it's going to happen, I guess, is sort yeah. of their take. So basically the, the point is that 
you can't rely on just keeping people out. You have to detect when they do get in and, and kick them back out quickly. Uh, all right. So we were talking about this earlier, too. Popular security software came under relentless NSA and GCHQ attacks. Uh, this one is kind of interesting. Uh, the GCHQ got a legal warrant, and that's how we're finding out about this, is the warrant has been released from Snowden Docs from a few <laughs> years ago. Uh, and they went after uh, Kaspersky Labs in 2000, starting in 2008. Uh, and uh, they say the personal security products such as the Russian antivirus software Kaspersky continue to pose a challenge to GC- GCHQ's uh, computer network exploitations uh, capabilities and is essential in order to uh, be able to exploit such software and prevent detection of our activities. They also want to prevent being detected. Examination of this is in the warrant. Examination of Kaspersky and other such products continues. The warrant re- renewal request also states that the GCHQ reverse engineers antivirus programs to access uh, their f- to assess I'm sorry, to assess their fitness for government. So they get, and this is a yearly uh, or something like that uh, renewal that they get. And mm-hmm. they talk about also uh, the NSA and how they target, um, the NSA is targeting Nod32 and ESET. Uh, on here is AVG that's being targeted by the NSA. Checkpoint, the firewall makers, uh, Dr. Webb, yep. Bitdefender, uh, F-Secure, uh, and others are all being targeted uh, by the NSA. Good times. Not surprising, yep. I guess. Although it's interesting to see McAfee and Semantic being left off that list. Maybe they have another yeah. arrangement. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I yeah, lo- <laughs> maybe, they, maybe they provide the source code directly to the NSA. Yeah, exactly. They just have a partnership program. You yep. were kind of hinted at this just a few minutes ago. Stealing data from a PC, like encryption keys, even though it's not connected to anything. Uh, so this one's actually not related to that. But uh, this is research oh, okay. from uh, um, Tel Aviv. Uh, in Israel, that uses software-defined radios to uh, detect stuff. So basically, uh, they have a software-defined radio USB stick connected to an antenna uh, and a little 15-centimeter loop of of coax cable. And by holding that within uh, 15 centimeters of your laptop, uh, if they send you an encrypted email uh, and you decrypt it with your GPG key, uh, through that antenna, they can steal your GPG key. Hmm. In just a couple of seconds. Uh, an older version of this attack required hours of, of stuff, but this one can do it in a couple of seconds. Yeah, it's like, what, $300 worth of parts? Yeah, it's like $250 worth of parts. Uh, and they, they show the whole thing bundled up and, and sitting on top of a pita for some reason. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it's like, it's the size of a pita. And so they can just set this next to the computer and, and just pull it off. over. Yeah, and hours. record it and then later analyze it to steal your key. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically... It causes your computer to do um, certain types of multiplication at a certain time when it can detect the variance in the RF coming off your processor. Uh, and by doing that, can figure out what your key is, apparently. Mm. Fascinating. Huh? They've also uh, designed a version that can use a little um, handheld AM radio uh, with a cable plugged into your phone to let your phone do the analysis. So using a HTC Evo 4G phone and a little like $10 AM radio... Uh, they're able to do the thing without looking nearly as conspicuous. Uh, because apparently the um, the signal leakage happens at around 1.7 megahertz, which is in the range of commercial AM radio. Okay, Alan, help me with this next one. Is it Sakinia? How do you say this one? I think it's Sakunia. Sakunia? Oh, yeah, that looks right. Something like that. Tell me about this. Uh, so they're basically a website where they've uh, you've been able to go and read about uh, security vulnerabilities when they come out. And they have a commercial offering where they offer, you know, vulnerability advisories, advisories management and, like and so yeah. on. Yeah. Right. Uh, they're changing the way their website works so that if you're not a member, you don't see vulnerabilities that are less than nine months old. 
uh, saying that frequently they encounter organizations engaged in wrongful use of the Secunia advisories. So basically, the license was that uh, you're not allowed to use the advisories without, uh, for commercial purposes without paying them hmm. uh, by being a member, and people were apparently doing it anyway. Hmm. And so now uh, you have to sign up as a community member or pay as a corporate member in order to get access to the vulnerabilities. Or anything more than nine months old is available on the website for free. Okay. Alan Jude, web app spotter. Look at this. It's a regex editor. Yes. For your browser. Uh, so I, I had to write a ridiculous regular expression. Uh, it was the first time I've ever used a negative look behind, which basically says, only match if before this, this string does not appear. Uh, or this regular expression, this sub part of the regular expression doesn't appear anywhere before this point in the expression. Uh, and most of the JavaScript-based engines like this, like there are tons of websites like this out there, but almost all of them are just use raw JavaScript. And so when you go to put this negative look behind in, they're like, sorry, JavaScript doesn't support negative look behinds. Uh, whereas this one did. So I was like, ooh, helpful. Interesting, Alan. And, cool. Uh, someone in the chat room is like, what's the URL? I always use uh, regex101. I'm like, yes, it's regex101. Yeah, it's regex101. Because <laughs> the other one I found was like regexer. Dot com. Yeah. And it was pretty good, but it didn't break down the matches as nicely. And if they were long, they were cut off with ellipsis. Uh, so, yes, uh, Regix 101 is really nice. All right, Alan, this next one makes me shake my head. Looks like uh, Android apps downloaded more than 200 million times may fail to properly encrypt their HTTPS traffic. In dozens yep. of and different types of Android apps, it could be a defect in how they implement HTTPS. What do we know? Uh some of them don't use HTTPS at all. Some of them do and do it wrong. <laughs> yeah, and right. so they, you know, they have an example here of actually being able to suck the password out and uh, spit it out on the window. Hmm. So oh, yeah, yeah. Look uh, at that. Random app developers turns out are not security experts. Yeah. Now, what do you think or about? Just have no clue uh, what they're doing. What do you think about? I don't know the details and how the hell they're doing this. But in iOS nine, Apple is going to have developers use like a system level SSL implementation, I, where <laughs> the app developers won't be writing SSL. Uh, I don't actually understand exactly how it works Basically, because it seems like a library. But it seems like also then like a single point to decrypt everything. I don't. Awesome. I don't know exactly how it works, but so that's apparently there. I, but I, what I grokked from uh, following their 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 presentation on it was their idea is that way individual developers are not implementing things like secure protocols yes. and things like that. Well, yeah, because in, well, in general, individual developers shouldn't have to be or shouldn't be trying to implement HTTPS themselves. There are standard libraries for that, and they're already there. I don't mm-hmm. know why they were trying to do it. Now, when you want to do direct SSL, not over not for HTTP, yes, you have this problem, and uh, you know. The OpenSSL APIs are horrible, and that's part of the point of the LibreSSL is they're actually making a libTLS uh, system where you'll actually be able to talk to it in a more human-friendly way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's hard to say. All right, we touched on this one already, but uh, it's in the roundup. If you want to read more, the U.S. Navy's warfare systems will just stay on XP, and they paid millions yep. to do it. They paid $9.1 million so far, and uh, the contract could extend up to 2017 and cost $30 million. Yeah, $30.8 million. Wow, for XP, that's not worth it. Not worth it. Uh, all right. Now tell me about this next one. The, uh, is it right, robot? the robot? So uh, we've talked a little bit before about the Sony Ibo little dog yeah. robot yeah. and how they stopped making them and stopped selling replacement parts. And so you know, there's a whole industry out there about trying to bodge them back together or... Um, cannibalizing 
uh, broken ones to get parts to fix <laughs> ones that are still working. Yeah. Uh, well, this kind of raises the question about the next generation of robots because SoftBank is uh, set to release their children robots. Uh, the first one's called mm. Pepper. Uh, and eventually the idea is that people would have these, like, kids. And then <laughs> what will people do when spare parts for their child can only be gotten by cannibalizing other children? Oh, my gosh. Sounds like good sci-fi to me. It does. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Uh, hmm. You know, it's, it reminds you of those, like, sci-fi stories and so on of, you know, parents having an extra kid just to use it as an organ donor oh, for geez, their um, first kid oh, that's geez. sick or whatever. Morbid. That's morbid. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> what do you think of this one? Google, Microsoft, Mozilla, and others team up WebKit. to launch WebAssembly, a new binary format for the web. Yeah. Um, I'm not entirely sure if this is actually becoming a binary format or it's just a way to compile C down into bytecode JavaScript. So if it ends up running in JavaScript, I suppose it kind of makes sense. They say a new binary format for compiling applications for the web. The new format is, allo- right. is meant to allow programmers to compile their code for the browser, currently focused on C and C++ with other languages to follow, uh, where it is then executed inside a JavaScript engine. Instead of having to parse the full code, though, which can often take quite time, WebAssembly mm-hmm. can decoded, be decoded significantly faster. Right. So, yeah, the biggest problem with JavaScript is that you get it as the source code and you have to compile it first before you can run it. Whereas compiled, you know, it'd be useful. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, so this basically be What taking, could go wrong? Uh, yeah, basically, here's a bunch of binary blobs. Please just run them. Yeah. Well, let's, let's uh, go although here. it's not like anybody's looking at the JavaScript before no, it runs know, in the browser true. anyway. So, um, <clears throat> But you should check out a recent uh, BSD Now episode where we talked about Cloud ABI, mm. which was a new... It's a fake operating system, so it's not really an operating system, but it's registered as one. And it's a, basically a binary you compile with Clang or whatever, uh, and it will run on any of the supported operating systems. Fancy. So a binary you could make once that will run on BS, uh, FreeBSD, NetBSD, Linux, etc. Uh, and it, you know, eventually maybe it will support Windows. And in that case, you would then have uh, the single binary that could run anywhere. Our next story, is this a follow-up to somebody who participated in the HP Disclosure Program? Uh, this is, uh, um, or they got a bounty. HP's, yeah, well, uh, HP has been running uh, what they call uh, the Zero Day Initiative for a long time, mm-hmm. and so they're actually looking back at how it's gone so far ah. and kind of giving a, a rundown of it. Okay, uh, you know, they say uh, the so far they've paid uh, one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars to various things, uh, or sorry. The, they announced that their team won $125,000 for a, a Microsoft Mitigation Bypass bounty and the Blue Hat bounty uh, for defense and talked about a bunch of other stuff. Uh, this is partly uh, related to the one we had before about Microsoft's ASLR stuff uh, and where mm-hmm. HP had a bypass for that, kind mm-hmm. of found in tandem with Google's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basically they talk about how it's been running the Zero Day Initiative and basically doing like Google's Project Zero, having a bunch of researchers paid to to work on this stuff. Uh, and also how they're doing 120-day disclosure timeline instead of 90 days like Google. Uh, and, you know, the different problems they've run into and where, what things are working, what's not, and so on. And, you know, why they choose to disclose stuff when they find it. Hmm. Good find, Alan. Uh, specifically, the, the one uh, vulnerability that they did find is like, 
Uh, they told Microsoft about it, and Microsoft isn't willing to fix it. So now there's been 120 days they're releasing it anyway. And they say, since Microsoft feels that these issues do not impact the default configuration of Internet Explorer and thus affect a large number of co- uh, consumers, it is their judgment not worth their resources and the potential regression risk. Uh, HP disagrees that the, uh, with that opinion and are releasing a proof of concept information to the community in the belief that uh, concerned users should be fully informed as to possible you know, what measures they can take to prevent this from happening to them. And maybe somebody can uh, advance the vulnerability to the point where Microsoft will care enough to fix it. Mm-hmm. All right. Now I think I know which one you're referring to. Five spy technologies that can't be stopped by going offline. Five cyber spy technologies. I like this graphic they have of uh, clipping the uh, Ethernet, too. So uh, electromagnetic spying is one of them. Okay. Yep. That's uh, Tempest, which is... a kind of the thing we just showed except for tempest cost a lot of money and and the uh the other one was 250 dollars in a pita right <laughs> it's on a pita yeah uh, they also have lasers uh you know for example accelerometer in a smartphone uh resting near the keyboard provides approximately 80 percent recognition of uh your typing hmm. and so on um listening to the radio you know intercepting keyboard input is not always useful obviously but you know, the Stuxnet worm, and they talk about what you can do with radios, and also using uh, heat. It's like often air-gapped computers tend to actually sit near not air-gapped computers, and uh, the motherboard temperature sensor on the one computer might actually be able to detect disturbances from the other one that's only a couple inches away from it. Jeez. Apparently up to up to 15 inches. Wow. Uh, and then they also talk about, uh, you know, if, in a classic well-shielded room, uh, it doesn't necessarily guarantee data leakage protection, right? So even if it's got like a Faraday cage and no signals are getting out of it, uh, you know, that stops electromagnetic noise from like RF and so on, but it doesn't stop ultrasonic sound. So in the case of uh, an ultrasonic technology, spy equipment uh, can be represented as two compact units, one that's plugged into the computer that you're spying from mm-hmm. and one that's plugged in outside the room but nearby uh, that doesn't even need power. It actually gets powered by the ultrasonic signal coming from uh, inside the room. Jeez. And apparently they've got uh, transfer speeds of up to 12 megabytes a second, which is plenty to uh, steal data. And I'd love to have ultrasonic 12 megabytes a second. That's, uh, if anything, they mean megabytes, that's 100 megabits. I would, love, I would love to have anything possible in my house powered by ultrasonic sound waves. Anything. Like, let's start with the... Let, wow, okay. All right, fine. Keep it above me. Let's start with the smoke detectors. Can I not have to replace the battery in the smoke detector at 3 a.m., please? That would be nice. Yeah. That's a cool uh, That's cool. I idea. don't know. The only ultrasonic thing I have in my house are some things Tooth in the basement. That keep the, no, they oh. keep the rodents out. Oh, yeah, yeah. They emit a, an ultrasonic yes. sound, that, and then yes. I've not had another mouse since. Yeah, those are neat. Yeah. Um, all right, Alan, guess what? That brings us to the end of the TechSnap nope. program. There's one more link. Oh. Oh, you know what? After all of that, I, that was the one that I dropped. All right, you start, and I'll pick it up. It's just a Twitter cartoon. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Hold on. I'm yes, ready. You can start it. I'll pull it up right now. There we go. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the uh, – so it's, this comes from Dan Kaminsky, you think is how you say it? Yes, who's a, a yeah, famous uh, security researcher. And you know how uh, in all the um, various – uh, examples of uh, like how encryptography works. There's like Alice and Bob, and then the bad guy is is like uh, Eve for evil or Mallory for malicious and so on. Uh, and so this one's like you know it shows uh, Ugg the caveman uh, signaling with smoke signals. Yeah, and then it says until one day when the mischievous uh, mischievous caveman Kaminsky moved in next door to Ugg and started sending smoke signals too. 
and they and look now, the same. It's like, now we need an authentication system to tell who's actually sending the message because hmm. Kaminsky can obviously pretend to be Ugg yeah. by sending a smoke signal from near his hips. A very complicated technical problem explained with smoke signals. And cavemen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. I'm glad we caught that one. All right. So now that brings us to the end of the TechSnap program. Uh, we'd love to have you join us live. We do this show live, jblive.tv, at uh, 1 p.m. on Thursdays, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Yeah, and that's specific 1 p.m. You can also go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar and just have it automatically converted to your local time zone. Don't forget the feedback. Which does make your life easier. Yeah. Yeah, and you can, you can actually just add it to your Google Calendar, too. Uh, feedback, uh, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or use the contact form. And subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And then, of course, the pro tip, the RSS feeds. You go grab those right before below the download links in the show notes. And uh, then you just get the show automatically every single week when you grab the RSS feed. Oh, I suppose also I could mention all of the copious links and notes Alan's added in the show notes. Those are also on that same page. You just scroll down a little bit further and links to everything we talked about today will be there. All right, Mr. Jude, have a great week. And thank you, everybody out there. I want to thank you. I'm thanking you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week. 